Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, top of the class or a failing grade? Does global education need a total reboot to prepare students for a high-tech future? Around the world, education systems are subject to constant scrutiny. But the combination of fast-changing technology and economic uncertainty, plus massive disruptions like the COVID pandemic and conflict in Ukraine, all show us we cannot take the future of education for granted. The United Nations says the world will need to have 272 million more children in school by 2030 than in 2015. On current trends, we're projected to miss this target by 110 million. The question is, are those in class learning the right things? Stanford University's Guide to Reimagining Higher Education found that 96% of university chief academic officers think their students are ready for the workforce. But here's the important bit, only 11% of business leaders feel the same. And let's face it, they'll be the ones hiring. Education matters for economic growth. The think tank, American Enterprise Institute, says every additional year of schooling for children is estimated to add a 9 to 10% increase in per capita output. So can our future education system provide leaders who are able to cope with the complexities of tomorrow? Since the late 19th century, the basic skills taught in schools were commonly referred to as the three R's, reading, writing and arithmetic. But the gap between education received by school leavers and the skills demanded by employers like coding, engineering, languages is widening. Many are therefore finding it hard to get the jobs that they want. So what should the future of schooling look like? Do global systems need a few tweaks or a radically different approach to the organisation of people, spaces, time and technology? Joining me now is Penny van Bergen, Professor of Educational Psychology and Head of the School of Education at Australia's University of Wollongong. Thanks ever so much for, for coming on the programme. I want to start with some of those statistics that we've just been running through. 96% of university chief academic officers think their students are ready for the workplace, but only 11% of business leaders feel the same. That's a bit of a gap, isn't it? It's a stark contrast. Uh, and in some ways, it doesn't surprise me at the same time. You know, I think there's a, a difference in perhaps what universities would see the purpose of university education for. And there's there's always been this distinction between um, that core purpose and perhaps what businesses would like from university. I think what we've started to see over time is some of those interests come together in a really wonderful way. But clearly that message, you know, that, that kind of this, that disconnect still exists. Um, you know, so from a university perspective, there's often a sense of education being much broader than just the, the workplace that you go into. But of course, it is preparing people for work at the same time. From a business perspective, you want people ready to hit the ground running. So that's, I think that's where we see that disconnect. You talk about things coming together in certain areas. So where are they coming together? And on the other hand, where do colleges and schools, universities need to step things up? So I think you see there's a lot more focus in universities today um, and also true um, across the school sector as well on work integrated learning. So there's a lot more focus on bringing 
uh, companies or organisations, community groups into the university and fostering genuine links. Um, and, you know, hopefully with the idea that that benefits students because you're able to engage in things that are happening out in the real world, um, as well as developing the theoretical knowledge that you need, as well as developing the practical skills that you need, um, you know, sort of that you're learning in the university classroom, there's the opportunity to go out and to apply those uh, and to work with people out in industry, out in the community sector uh, on practical problems, real world problems. So there is this real benefit and those programs have developed um, over time. They've really strengthened across the past decade. Uh, so I think that's where we're doing things well. Where there perhaps is that disconnect still is that when university graduates get out, they're often still at the start of that educational journey. You know, you think you've got a university degree, you should be kind of ready to fire into things. But often business interests are very specific, community organisation interests are very specific. Um, and so sometimes it's a matter of, I think, thinking about what a university education can give to graduates uh, and what the business world might be able to sort of pick up from there and to sort of continue scaffolding and to continue developing. Uh, and some of that, I think, comes down to dialogue. So I think we've done the work integrated learning sort of much better over the past decade than we used to. Um, but that dialogue is... Um, sometimes really flowing well, sometimes there's there's um, gaps in what that dialogue looks like between those two worlds. Now we can all remember being asked at various stages what you want to be when you grow up. When should students start preparing for the future, for the world of business? Is it university but or do we need to take it further back to, to high school or maybe primary school? I think we want to be developing sort of interests and skill sets early on and we want to be allowing students to pursue those interests and those skill sets early on. But I think also we want to be very cautious that we don't lock very young people into career pathways that they may not end up sort of wanting to pursue in the long term. And so I think what we'd want from primary education or um, secondary education is a breadth of knowledge and skills that would allow students to pivot in different directions. We're seeing a change in the makeup of university students as well. So it's not just recent school graduates, but there's also a lot of mature age students coming back to restudy and retrain as well. So, you know, I think we'd want to be thinking about uh, education holistically, about how does this prepare you for a world of work where you may change a couple of times um, and not necessarily just that very first job. So certainly specialised skills are important and we want to be pursuing interests, but we also want a breadth of knowledge and skills that could allow you to pivot later on. There, there has been a, an understanding or a general consensus, if you like, that just further education is a good thing. And there's been a drive in places like the UK to get as many people from as many different backgrounds into universities as possible. But what about that shift to perhaps more vocational skills going, maybe dipping back into the past, but taking them into the future like they do in places like Germany? Is there uh, more of a need for those vocational courses for the future? I think there's a need to really support vocational education and make sure it's as robust as possible. And we certainly don't want to see university and vocational education uh, sort of in competition. We want to see them catering to students for whom they're best suited. Um, where we've seen that increase in student numbers, you know, across the Western world, very often that's meaning more diverse students. And I think that's a great thing. We want students from every background to have access to education and to be able to pursue a university education if they want to. Um, certainly we've seen the same trends in Australia. And so where um, access was expanded, it was students from lower socioeconomic um, groups. It was Indigenous students. It was very particular groups of students who benefited best from that expanding access. Uh, so that's a great thing 
everything because we want university education to be accessible. But what we also want to do is value vocational education. And if a particular student thinks that they'd be better off in that pathway, you know, then I think maybe that is, you know, that is something that we want to encourage as well. In which case, what role is there for business? Would you say that there there could be more of of big corporations sponsoring technical colleges and things like that for more apprenticeships, for more vocational courses, so that they are training the next generation of their own workers, perhaps? Absolutely. You know, so I think there's partnerships in those vocational education settings um, that are perhaps applied to those more practical skill sets. And, and those are really valuable and that should, that should be happening. Uh, I think with universities, I think continuing that dialogue and those partnerships with work integrated learning, I think those are positives, you know, um, sponsoring um, sort of you know internships those things are really valuable for students as well but I think also seeing graduates from whatever system they come from whether we're talking about sort of you know students with a vocational education background or students who have come up through university you know I think seeing those students as still being at their start of their career and that you know they've they come with some skill they come with some knowledge But now it's the business's turn to take over and continue fostering that and to think about, well, what do they now need to do? You know, they're not coming as a finished product. They're coming as somebody with a, you know, a sort of a particular degree or a particular qualification. Um, And so it's the business's turn then to pick up from there and say, okay, and now this is what we need as a business. You know, many businesses do this really well already. You know, you have graduate programs that do that. And I think that's what I'd encourage for all businesses. Do you worry that we might end up losing that joy of learning if there's too much focus on what happens afterwards? I'm wondering about how we get that balance right between academia and more vocational learning. I do. I think, you know, learning should be fun and you should be doing things that you are passionate about. And certainly we hope that people end up in careers that they're passionate about. But I don't think the sole purpose of education is to train for um, for particular business interests. I think it's for training for a future. Um, and very often, you know, we want that to be to be aligning with those business interests at the same time. Um, but we want to make sure that the learning is not only it's fun, but it also benefits um, individuals and it benefits communities to have an educated populace. You know, it's people who can engage in debates about what's happening in politics, in um, religion, in ethics, you know, all of those sorts of nutty issues that we encounter in uh, in the world. Education helps us to encounter those, helps us to think about them. So it creates, you know, well-rounded individuals, um, certainly other ways of doing that as well. But I think that's one of its core purposes at primary education, at secondary education, at university. You know, we want to make sure that that, that that kind of whole development is there, that holistic development, um, along with a love of learning and with all the practical and knowledge-based skills that are going to be useful in careers later on. Penny Van Bergen, thank you. Thank you. The current cohort of students may though have bigger worries than whether they're ready to join the workforce. UNICEF estimates they've missed out on two trillion hours of face-to-face teaching because of the pandemic. To consider how we might make up for that, I'm joined now by Edward Marr, Secretary General of the Yidan Prize Foundation. Well, thanks ever so much for for coming on the programme. First of all, talk us through the Yidan Prize Foundation. What is it? Um, basically, we look all over the world for great ideas and sustainable solutions that can transform education for our future. Every year, we award two prizes for impactful research and actions that can inspire change in ed- education for our future generations. 
the value of our each price is 30 million Hong Kong dollars. That's the equivalent of 3.7 million euro or 3 million pounds. But that's not all. We are a global community of researchers, social entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and policymakers all coming together with a strong sense of purpose because it's really important to invest into the future. How we think about education and what we do about education today will have an impact down the line. This stat from UNICEF that more than two trillion hours of learning was lost during the pandemic. That, that's pretty impossible to make up, isn't it? Well, the only way to solve this is to work together. And yes, um, the two trillion hours of lost learning is a shocking number that describes the magnitude of the problem. But we also learned that we don't have to tackle it alone. There are many education experts around the world already collaborating and dedicating their efforts to make it work. An example would be the Pratham Education Foundation. They found that children in rural India were spending years at school, but they're not acquiring the basic skills they need. So what they do is they team up with researchers to understand the problem and design what they call the teaching at the right level program to help these children catch up. And they have found that effective catch-up can take as little as 30 to 50 days. So you're looking at catch-up programs for those lower to middle-income nations where children are most affected by this education gap? Yes, indeed. And we actually find a lot of great innovations from low to middle-income countries. And going forward, it will be about co-creating that learning experience. And it will be about much closer collaborations between research and practice, um, philanthropists and policymakers. And it's all about everyone working together to, to solve the problems. But there is no one size fits all, is there? And I'd like to talk to you about how you're going to get children back into the classroom. I mean, if we look at what UNICEF says, that there are um, three priorities getting them back into the classroom, giving them the efficient means to learn, but also ensuring that they're safe. So let's go through those one by one. Yeah, well, I believe that it's about having a very supportive community and also engaging with the people who are willing to go that extra mile for children's education, like the Campaign for Female Education or CAMFED for short. They started in Zimbabwe by bringing back girls who were on the verge of being excluded from schools. And now today, they have all the beneficiaries coming together in what they call the CAMFED Alumni Association. There are over 200,000 learner guides in Ghana, in Zimbabwe, in Zambia, in Malawi, and in um, Tanzania. And they are all supporting the girls um, in school, making sure they are happy, making sure their social emotional needs are met. And they are, they are benefiting millions of girls in Africa with the CAMFETS program. How do you make it more efficient? Um, the efficient is uh, actually also another very interesting um, um, topic because uh, what we have seen is that the traditional approach to instruct um, learners to learn about science or maths, that will not work in the future. But what we have seen is that there are interesting tools now being developed. Our laureates have developed what they call the FET simulation. And the FET simulation is an online tool um, that allows the learner to visualize what is going on in a typical science experiment. 
figure out how things work, and they can actually also illustrate their learning by using the simulation together with their teacher. And the very interesting thing is that a typical learner in the traditional lecture setting, they might actually just take away about 10% of what was taught, and then a lot of support would be needed to help them have that learning staying in their mind. But with this simulation tool, we found that the learners will be able to learn as much as 90% of what's being taught. And the long lasting impact of that learning is very evident. So we believe that going forward, a program like this, especially for regions where they are resource constrained, they, this kind of program has great potential to scale and to encourage teachers and learners in a new way to interact together and to improve learning. It's interesting, you, you talk about those resources being constrained and also having these simulated programs because digital innovation is seen as key to making education more universal and it's something we certainly saw um, during the pandemic, but there is still a huge digital divide, isn't there? Yes, certainly. The digital divide is a very, very big problem and we have heard that this will require effort beyond just the education community. In fact, it will, we need to bring in the telecom company to improve connectivity. We have to bring in technology companies to make those platforms openly accessible to all. But I think we don't want to just focus on providing learners with access to digital learning. From the work of our laureates, uh, we can actually see that quality education can be delivered offline with well-designed programs working between researchers and practitioners who know their local context best. And we want to also emphasize the need to focus on the social interaction because our laureates have also shown us that um, typically for children, the, the, the way their brain works and develop for the first thousand days is that they learn best when they are interacting with their peers and it, with the teachers, with the parents. So it is really important for us to focus on Yes, providing access to digital platforms, but also not forgetting about the social interaction that actually make all learners learn better. Edward Ma, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. How China is changing tack to take the pressure off its pupils. The education system in China has already undergone some major upheavals in the past year. It follows the government ban on so-called crammer schools, which research shows has made the country's children much happier. Well, joining me now to talk in more detail about how the Chinese are approaching education reform is Shani Wangxi, Assistant to the Principal and Director of College Counselling at Xinhua University High School. Thanks ever so much for, for coming on the programme. First of all, let's talk about the, the differences that you think there are between the way education is run and is thought about in the West to, to how you do things in China. Well, yeah, actually, uh, it's a very nice question. I mean, this is a big difference. I think maybe not that big as before right now. I think, you know, we try to usually use education just like, you know, educate more than, you know, probably another word that we call to cultivate. Or maybe like, you know, sometimes we can find a difference between the study and the learn, and also probably something about the experience. So, you know, in China, most of people believe that is a heritage or the history, you know, historical reasons the students have a kind of trend or the routine that they want to get educated. 
But I think maybe in Western um, education system, people are more likely to have a kind of sense of self-exploration. Or maybe they have a more, we call it like a self-motivation to study. Uh, I think probably China has a really long history, like, you know, in the past, you know, maybe several dynasty, maybe, you know, a long time ago, people like to get educated. You know, we have very nice teachers, like Confucius, and a lot of things. People believe the teachers are, should be respected. It's interesting you talk about previous dynasties and the, the learnings of Confucius as still shaping the way the Chinese education system works. I wonder, though, if that prepares students sufficiently for the world of work. You know, especially during the pandemic, this, you know, couple of years and uh, I think adaptability is right now it's a very important you know competency for the students to have um, so if you do not take a risk which means like you cannot have new um, new things innovations because like you always follow the tradition only sometimes the tradition is good you know, they have very good things to carry on but doesn't mean that you do not need to step forward and step out of the comfort zone to have more things to explore in order to push the, the society forward. So that is the one thing. So adaptability so far, you know, for the pandemic, you can find students here in China, maybe they don't know how to face and cope with the new, you know, new things like trouble and also some unexpected, you know, matters. So I think that is the people, I mean, the students here in China, they need to improve. Now, the Chinese government brought in some tough regulations on grammar schools. Uh, what was the reasoning behind that? Talk us through it. <laughs> uh, this is a very complicated question, I should say. Um, lots of people, I mean, not in the field of education, people will say, hey, probably maybe the government need to in increase some population and also some birth. You know, they used to have a birth control policy and so on. They probably need more people to get you know, chance to give birth. And also they believe that education is a heavy burden for the family uh, to take. So they believe the, uh, the cost and also the time and also very stressful education, uh, you know, uh, demanding curriculum system will make people to have more extra work outside of the campus. And so they want to reduce the pressure and the stress for the students and also the pressure and stress for the parents at, at the same time, not only for the financial reasons, but also people always struggling, I know, going back and forth to find they caught so good and perfect education resources for their kids. So that is a big issue. But for me, I think that is there is another reason people really want to have this kind of you know, regulation. Uh, we want to improve the equity and the fairness for the education. So the goal was a level playing field and to take away some of the, the stress. I know it's early days, but it seems like it's making children a lot happier, but it's making parents more stressed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, when the new thing comes out, you know, people really don't know how to deal with it at the beginning. Like, you know, it seems like, oh my God, it's like, you know, probably they have different criteria. And also if everybody, they have no extra work for the people to select, to choose, which means they really don't know how to, you know, to show or demonstrate their kids are great and better than the other students. So how they can find it, uh, how they can, you know, prove that their kids are very unique. 
that is make people panic and also upset. So some people will you know chase some special tutors or some other resources. But actually, for for the time for the time being, it is true. But uh, gradually, I think people will know there is no one way to um, to to have as the cut off for all the people to say how your kids are great or not. Now, China is a very big place, and as you mentioned, incredibly diverse. So, what can China do to to get to those harder to reach communities, children in less developed parts of the nation? China is huge. As it's a, I should say it's not only uh, horizontally, like you know, technically to say the area is big, but also we should say we got a different, you know, different vertically to say we have some people that their parents get well educated before, or they have you know different minorities like a background and uh, different settings. So uh, we should say it's it's a it's a hard, but I think the China government has taken a lot of and I mean the measures to deal with this problem. Well, we've certainly all learned a lot. Shiny Wang Shi, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you so much. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.